Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In the early 1900s, opponents of the Tsar came up with an ingenious new way to beat censorship and spread a message of defiance. Picture postcards. Easy to print, distribute, and comprehend, postcards were a key propaganda weapon in the fight against imperial authority. Produced by a set of revolutionaries, liberals, and opportunists, the content of these propaganda cards is equally wide-ranging, from satirical caricatures directed against the government to rare photographs of revolutionary demonstrations. Many of the postcards are darkly humorous, combining laughter with a sense of raw indignation at the injustices of life under the Tsars. My guest, Toby Matthew, has written the first major study of the design, production, and distribution of these cards, featuring over 200 images. Together, they form a rich body of political art that illustrates the danger of opposing the regime during this turbulent era. Toby Matthew is a writer and historian specializing in Russian graphic art and propaganda. He has previously lived in Almaty, Kiev, and Moscow, where he spent three years working as a journalist for the Associated Press. He's the author of Greetings from the Barricades, Revolutionary Postcards in Imperial Russia, published by Four Corners Books. If you'd like to see some examples of these revolutionary postcards, go to the podcast website. I put up some images to accompany this interview. Here's Toby Matthew. So you, you have this, this really beautiful and fabulous looking book and very interesting book, Greetings from the Barricades, Revolutionary Postcards in Imperial Russia. And it gives a, a it shows visually and gives a history of revolutionary postcards and their place in the revolutionary movement and particularly in the 1905 revolution. So I just wanted to start by just having you tell the story of how you got interested in this, how you came upon these postcards and, you know, what struck you about them? So really it was complete coincidence um, in that I started learning Russian at school um, way back in the mid nineties. And on one of my very first trips to Russia, after having started learning Russian literally for only a couple of months, um, I went out to St. Petersburg. And while I was there, like most tourists during that period, I went around and came across various uh, markets selling mostly old Soviet uniforms and tat and that sort of thing. And one day I came across some postcards. 
And I saw and I knew these were obviously revolutionary cards, but I wasn't quite sure what date they were, and I bought them. And when I came back on subsequent visits, I came across some more. And suddenly, after a few years, I had 20 of them, and I had the start of a collection. And so I thought that it was probably about time to find out a little bit more about them. Started reading up, um, and lo and behold, discovered this whole new arena that had been studied um, looked at particularly by collectors. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much academic interest during the Soviet period. It was really people who started out in the 60s collecting them. And so having read these uh, articles, um, which are you know, really only in Russian, um, I then started trying to actively search them out. And the great advantage um, was that I was collecting in the early 2000s when eBay uh, really became a thing. And I started to come across better examples, ones in better condition and also colour imagery. And so I then started a concerted effort to track down dealers, to go back to Russia, to really find where these things were. And so I built up a, a relatively sizable collection of them, all the while trying to find out as much as I possibly could about them. Fast forward a few years, um, I ended up moving out to Moscow. Um, I studied Russian at university, and I think like many people, uh, certainly in the UK, on, on leaving university, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. So I went back home, and after a couple of months at home, bless my parents, they're, they're lovely people, but I think as a, as, as a teenager living with them was all a bit too much, um, and I thought, what am I going to do? So I went out to Russia, started work as a journalist for BBC, and then eventually got a job with the Associated Press. And actually being there gave me the opportunity to really track these things down. And I also started meeting museum professionals and people who really knew what they were. And this, you know, I suppose about 10 years ago, I thought maybe I might be able to write a book um, a naive thought, but of course, like, you know, as soon as you start doing the research, you realise what a daunting task it is. And I was amazed, actually, how much there is in the archives um, on it. But so what was really, you know, complete coincidence ended up being, you know, let's, let's call, call it by what it is, it became a bit of an obsession. Right, right. This, the obsession of the collector. <laughs> I... I... Yeah, because, you know, I have to admit, you know, I, I've read a lot about the Russian revolutionary movement. I've taught it, but I had never heard. And, you know, of course, I've seen some of visual propaganda, but I had never heard of this fascinating phenomenon of, of, of these postcards and, and the, the politics and the visual imagery that they have. is just it's just really stunning. So what talk about the history of the postcard in Russia. When did it begin and how did it? did the revolutionary movement begin to use the postcard as a means of disseminating their their visual propaganda and and views? So this is the extraordinary thing, and I, I actually share your wonder completely in discovering this topic, because certainly when I started out, I knew nothing. But the more layers I peeled back, the more it really seems that actually postcards are a microcosm for an enormous amount of the social and historical changes that took place in Russia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, postcards started in Austro-Hungary. Um, there are various claims um, to, the, to the first postcard before this period that the first official state postcards were issued in Austro-Hungary in October 1869. 
Um, they did not arise in a vacuum. Um, postcards came about as part of much wider postal reforms, um, and these were needed because of enormous social changes, not least uh, population enlargement, greater increases in literacy, and a huge development of the transport system through the railways. And um, what this did was place huge pressure on postal systems that were really, prior to this period, only catering for the elite. And so, as part of the postal measures, uh, postal reforms, postcards came in. Um, they were enormously popular. Um, they were intended to be a uh, ch more cheap and convenient form of communication. And this was for both individuals and businesses, because of course in this period you also see a massive rise in commerce. In Russia, all of these pressures on the postal system were perhaps more acute than anywhere else in Europe. Um, disasters of Crimea, the Crimean War, had shown how really how bad Russia's postal communication service was. So in 1870, there was a big proposal put forward to revamp the whole system. And as part of this, postcards came to Russia. And they were first issued in January 1872. And um, they really caught on very quickly um, in Russia and across continents, across all of Europe, um, into America. All of the earliest postcards uh, in Europe uh, and in Russia were actually um, subject to a government monopoly. These didn't have any decoration on them at all. They were plain, unadorned correspondence cards. And um, this monopoly started to fall away in Europe, starting with Germany in the 1870s. Um, but actually, there were significant exceptions. The UK, the US, uh, and Russia itself actually quite enjoyed the revenue that came in from this monopoly uh, and kept hold of it. And in Russia, it wasn't until 1894 that private enterprise was allowed to become involved. And private enterprise was transformative because suddenly you get commercial competition, you get increasingly elegant, sophisticated designs, and you also get commercial manufacturers. The famous examples in Russia are actually the Singer sewing machine uh, company and Einem Chocolates, who produced advertising cards. There's one other important point about Russia in, in the postcard manufacturers, but it's slightly different from the rest of Europe. They did not have a particularly well-developed printing base. And so actually in the early years, you get a lot of the companies, a lot of the companies producing postcards, a lot of the publishers come from Europe. They're foreign firms operating in Europe who take commissions and then print the designs back, particularly in Germany, but elsewhere in Europe. And in terms of Russian companies, you get very few producing anything sophisticated beyond photographic images. But one, the one exception, is the Society of St. Eugenia. And this is an absolutely key uh, postcard publisher in the early years. And they are uh, backed by imperial patronage, and they work very, very closely. They're the first company to produce artist-designed postcards, and they work very, very closely with the, the world of art artists, um, particularly Benoit. And they set themselves, they're interesting for another reason, because they set themselves the specific task of 
educating the population. So these postcards were, of course, they were produced for profit, but they were also didactic. These were a way of educating the masses in aesthetic taste. So the basic idea, and this was shared by a number of critics in the early years of, of Russian postcard production, but actually um, postcards were um, an educational tool uh, to inform um, and improve uh, taste. Was it mostly in terms of commercial tastes or fashion, or was it also about, say, morals in the terms of, like, I don't know, uh, health and uh, vice and things like this? No, so I think moralistic aspects come later, um, particularly early Soviet period, they're very keen on that. But at this stage, we see primarily it's actually in terms of art, of, 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 of educating the masses in good art, how to appreciate a well-drawn, well-designed um, uh, image. Beyond that, of course, you start to get, you know, literally people wanting to educate in taste. I mentioned Einem chocolates. You get other manufacturers, beer um, being a particular one. Um, and so I think this is what's really interesting is actually many years before the revolutionaries started to use postcards of visual propaganda, the postcard was seen in Russia as a way, as a propaganda tool that could be used in a didactic way to educate the masses. Talk then. Talk about how this uh, gets adopted by the Russian revolutionary movement, and and particularly the role of visual propaganda in that movement uh, as they as they're fighting for political and social change. The first visual propaganda uh, we really start to see is uh, in the form of carte de visite. And this comes in, uh, photography hits Russia in the 1850s. You start seeing the first revolutionary carte de visite in around the 1860s. Um, what appears to be the very first image, uh, or one of the first images, is actually um, a carte de visite of Dmitry Karakorsov. Um, so in 1866, after the, his assassination attempt on the Tsar, you get an enormous number of images produced uh, by official firms of Osip Komisarov, but at the same time, you start to see a challenge to the Tsar's narrative through revolutionary propaganda, and in particular through these images of Karakorsov. It was then used in the 1870s, and actually there's a lot of evidence in the archives for um, its use during the Going to the People movement in the 80, in 80, summer of 1873. And actually, one of the main pieces of evidence used against certain individuals in the great trial, I think the trial of the 193 was, was, was the big one, um, is actually the fact that they used these cartes de visite. Um, cartes de visite were quite difficult and expensive to produce, and um, towards the late 19th century, they get completely replaced by postcards. Now, now, wait a second. So, what are what are these? Are they are they basically like placards, or are they large? What did they look like? Um, so, cabinet cards are slightly larger. Carte de visite are slightly smaller. These are it's literally a, a photo mechanically reproduced image, normally a portrait during a stage, that is um, glued onto a cardboard base. And sometimes it is literally that. It is just a makeshift image, um, you know, whacked onto a piece of cardboard. So, so what, what allows for the transition into using postcards? So um, it's, it's mostly in terms of printing. 
that it becomes easier. So, so, so before, um, certainly for revolutionary usage, um, the photomechanical method is the only one they can use during this stage for images, with the exception of hectography um, that comes in the 1880s. And this is a makeshift uh, way of reproducing imagery and you, it, it, it's, a, it's a, from, a, from a gel base, it's a transfer method, and you literally get about 200 images. So in terms of mass production, it's printing that changes the dynamic. And I'm talking here, most of the carte de visite um, at this stage are produced in exile by revolutionaries abroad. In Russia, it does happen, but it's still um, very precarious and very dangerous. You you asked about um, what 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 the purpose of uh, this Im these images were for the revolutionaries, and I think there are three things really that are important. First of all, like the early postcards, this was uh, a teaching method. It was a way of showing a, 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 a would-be convert an image of a revolutionary and using it to educate the individual in the history of the movement and in what the movement stood for. And so it had a purely didactic purpose. Beyond that, the second usage um, was, and it, it's quite difficult to know how widespread images were in the, in the 1870s and 1880s. Certainly they became more so, but at this stage it seems that a lot of ownership was actually based only among the revolutionaries themselves. And so they served as what I call a, a revolutionary comfort rag. This was a, basically a way of sustaining and strengthening revolutionary belief. And so, you know, one imagines just before going to bed or something, you take a quick peek at your revolutionary cards and it was a way of, you know, stirring yourself for the fight ahead. And I think, in, I think in this way also, you know, they're icons. These were intercessors between the revolutionary faithful and the hierarchy and the heroes of the movement. So those are two ideological reasons. The third, and actually in many ways the most interesting um, use of propaganda during this period, and really right the way up to 1917, is as a fundraiser. And I think this is an aspect of revolutionary propaganda that has really been ignored and is actually incredibly important because money played a central role uh, in revolutionary life during this period. They were you know, incredibly impoverished and um, an enormous amount of their time was taken up firstly by fundraising and secondly by agitation. And here with propaganda you get the two together. And so right from the beginning, and I was actually amazed to discover this, but all, it's all there in the accounts and the uh, archives of the Socialist Revolutionary Party in Amsterdam in the International Institute of Social History are particularly good on this you can see how important propaganda was, and it was sold right from the beginning. Even these cartes de visite in the 1880s, they were never given away. And in fact, the only things that were given away, uh, even in 1905, were really leaflets, um, hectographic leaflets or printed leaflets. Anything visual was sold, because there was a real market for it. Well, that's what I was actually wanted to ask, is, is this aspect of commercialization of the revolutionary style or image because 
you know, one can look at today, for example, the the consumption of various revolutionary iconography um, and the collection of it. So I was also wondering on this commercial aspect, do you have uh, an, uh, this kind of activity going on? I mean, you, you said in the in raising money, but is there a, a certain, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but a certain, maybe a collector's mentality, like I'm in the movement or I'm connected to the movement and I want to collect all of these, the, this, these kind of objects. Um, I think definitely, and I think this comes particularly during the 1905 revolution. Um, there's a very good quote that I can't remember off the top of my head about revolution being a fashionable disease. And it very much was. And I think what is also important to understand uh, about these postcards is I think anyone coming to it previously without knowledge of who produced them and why they were produced would say, okay, here's a revolutionary image produced for a revolutionary supporter. And I think if you go back and you start to understand who was producing them, and later on, and I think we'll come on to this, it wasn't just revolutionaries, you start to see that actually uh, the motives for production and purchase were actually quite varied. And once you start selling something, you start getting speculators involved. And also, in terms of revolution itself, again, particularly in 1905, it being fashionable, you get people collecting it for all sorts of reasons. Um, it could be a record of their personal experience of living through turbulent times. It could be an object of amusement. Um, it could be um, any, you know, anything from an item of fervent belief down to, you know, just a, oh, look, you know, showing to your friends, here's something I bought in the market the other day. Isn't it funny? Yeah, right. Definitely. Or isn't it cool? Yeah, right? or isn't it cool? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what type of themes do these postcards represent? I think because the themes are to a certain degree uh, dependent on who produced them, it might be an idea just to go through um, who was producing these cards. Um, so in the early years, uh, really until about 1905, production is almost exclusively revolutionary. And up to 1905, the vast majority of these images are produced by committed revolutionary cells in Europe. To begin with, um, a lot are produced in Switzerland, uh, Geneva and Zurich being centres of, of Russian emigration. What happens after Bloody Sunday um, is that the revolutionary parties suddenly have three things that transforms the market. They have an enormous amount of money coming in, uh, which they didn't previously from support. They have large numbers of new supporters, and they also have a government in disarray. And this suddenly enables production to take place uh, in Russia um, in a way that it just it did not make sense beforehand. And beforehand, certainly with the internecine con conflicts and the huge political arguments between the revolutionary groups, newspapers and print were the de facto um, and most important uh, form of revolutionary propaganda. But what you get after Bloody Sunday is an event, and that is most powerfully told in images. And any image of a czarist a horseman, a Cossack striking down a woman or child, you know, tells you very clearly all the revolutionaries wanted you to know. 
And so throughout 1905, you get um, vast numbers more being produced in Russia of postcards, really specifically Bloody Sunday. Um, you get a few other historical images, but the majority of them on Bloody Sunday. The revolution, um, to re reduce it down, culminates or politically culminates in October when the Tsar is forced to issue his manifesto. The October manifesto grants five freedoms of which, for our purposes, the most significant is freedom of press. Freedom of press does two things um, in the world of postcards and print material. Um, the first off is it gives rise to a period of complete anarchy. Um, much as the main administration on press affairs and its head, um, uh, Bellegarde, tries to, 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 to rein in and to stop um, illegal things being printed, they simply can't. And so what you get is effectively a free-for-all. When it's no longer revolutionaries, it's anyone who wants to have a go. And actually they can do this, and this is significant as well, they can do this without um, much fear of uh, Tsarist reprisal. And the other thing that happens after, because of the October Manifesto, is that you start uh, getting in from November, and then subsequently March and April, you get new press regulations. And what these effectively do is they actually entrench some of the freedoms that the Tsar um, very reluctantly granted. These were railed back upon, but actually they still have a significant effect, and they allow for about a year and a half not so much caricatures, but moderately socialist images to be produced. And again, the traditional narrative is after October, the Tsar railed back, and really things go um, pear-shaped pretty quickly. But actually, I was quite surprised to see, you know, really right into 1907 and even beyond, you're getting firms, sometimes even new firms, producing opposition-orientated, or at least socialist um, postcards. Um, and I think that slightly skewed understanding has come about because um, the majority of uh, research at this period has been concentrated on satirical journals. And these unquestionably, because caricatures posed a particular threat, these absolutely were um, railed back on pretty quickly and the March regulations in March 1906 were specifically aimed at curtailing the journals. But actually, postcards last quite a lot longer. And so um, what, what, what happens as a result of these two effects of the October Manifesto is you start getting an enormous amount of new people producing political postcards. And this is a real threat, actually, to the income um, sources of revolutionary parties. And they're really concerned that after October, everything's changed. And that they've got, previously, they had their market completely to themselves. Now they're actually being challenged by a number of uh, liberal publishers, a number of revolutionaries who want to go it alone, um, and sheer speculators. And there's a great, there's, there's a great one of my favourite characters who I, who I wrote about was a, a man called Nikolai Merder. Um, and Merder was a, a French teacher who in the early 1900s uh, started producing postcards. And he was a real publicist, and he started the first uh, postcard journal, something called the Marshall Museum, or, or the Home Museum, in 1904. And it's completely packed full of self-congratulatory articles. And he wrote in 1904, life in our age moves fast. 
what attracts our attention today will be gone and tomorrow we'll be interested in something else. <laughs> Very prescient. And uh, I, you know, I think postcards in that sense, because they can, they can change so quickly, you can produce it in a day. They're really, they're, they're a great modernist object that can, can deal with the changes. And Merda, who produced an enormous amount of uh, postcards for the Russo-Japanese War, and then in early 1905 was producing images of the imperial family, then in late 1905 started producing opposition images. Hmm. So, Interesting. So, yeah, he's going with the flow. It absolutely, seems. absolutely. <laughs> and you know, I think, and I think, Merda, you know, I don't want to um, uh, slander him uh, um, years later, but I, you know, I think um, commercial uh, aspects were foremost in his mind. You know, the the thing that's that's incredibly striking, and again, a lots of praise to your book because the fact that a lot, so many of these postcards are reproduced in color, you get to see the vividness of them, is the art. What what do you know about the artists who drew these fantastic postcards? So the artists are many and varied. And part of a problem of researching um, these postcards is that the majority of them are unsigned. And that presents real difficulties, uh, both in understanding motivation um, but also in trying to appreciate, you know, what they're trying to do and what the artist is trying to say and who would have bought them. Um, what we know is that if we start back in 1905, where you start getting really the first pictorial images, the first images to be produced by the revolutionary parties um, after Bloody Sunday and of Bloody Sunday were actually produced by foreign artists principally Italian, French, and English. And what happened was because the revolutionaries at this stage really didn't have any contacts with established artists, they pirated the images from illustrated journals. And among the main ones uh, were actually taken from the London Illustrated Journal, um, and you also get them taken from the French journal, uh, L'Illustration. And both the London Illustrated Journal and uh, Illustration um, use the work of a, of a really prolific um, artist called George Scott. Or George Scott. Um, you don't really start seeing original imagery until later on in the year. Um, and the revolutionaries continue to reproduce old pictures. And the real pioneers, and again here, we can see uh, commercial competition in action. The real pioneers were actually the private firms who, who started after October, and they took on a lot of art school students. Um, and um, some of them are anonymous, some of them we know, and here there's a little bit of crossover in terms of the artists with satirical journals. Um, and as far as revolutionary, or artists producing images for revolutionary uh, groups, um, they are very, very few and far between. We really don't know many of their names. The only one, and he's a great hero of the book, um, is a man called Mikhail Chimodanov. Um, Chimodanov um, has an extraordinary history. He, in fact, was Russia's most famous dentist. Uh, so, Chimodanov is born in 1856 in Vyatka, modern-day Kirov. Um, and uh, he was born into a very poor family, son of a priest, and he managed to pull himself up and eventually get to Moscow 
University, Imperial Moscow University, and he studied medicine there. Um, and while there, very talented artist, while there he started submitting drawings to um, satirical journals. And he is very rare, not to say almost unique at this stage, because um, he consciously set himself the aim of criticising the status quo, of using satire and caricature to criticise the status quo. Um, at this time in the 80, 1870s, 1880s, this was almost unheard of. Um, mostly it was humorous images on drunkards, mother-in-laws and various other social ills. It was not criticism of how the regime was run. And this got Chimadanov in, into real trouble. And there's a particular cartoon that in 1881, after uh, the execution of um, Alexander II's uh, assassins, um, he amended, after it had been submitted to the censor, he amended a particular caricature to um, offer an implicit criticism of repression. And the Tsar himself, and it's all, all there in the archives, the Tsar himself approved the order to shut down the journal. Chimadana fled down to Georgia. And thereafter, he was actually back under police surveillance a couple of years later, or actually probably about six months later, but, but for another couple of years he had police surveillance. But really, things changed under Alexander III, and with a much more stolid atmosphere, Shimonanov simply couldn't make the images and couldn't make the money. And again, I think it's interesting here that actually financial concerns, and he, he writes this, I found his memoirs in, in the Russian Museum, um, he, he writes that he couldn't support a family, and therefore that's why he stopped. And so he then went off back to medicine, and it was suggested to him at the time that he studied under a surgeon, famous Russian surgeon called Skiflasovsky. And Skiflasovsky encouraged him to study dentistry, which at that time was in complete infancy in Russia. And Chibadana, for the next couple of decades, not only made a name for himself, he ran a journal, he ran the first dental school in Russia, and by 90, late 1904, he was the most celebrated dental surgeon in Russia. And in 1904, around 1904, he started drawing again. Now he says, there's a wonderful quote that his daughter said, he said, it's too late for me to fight on the barricades, but I can at least offer overhead fire. So th this was the motivation. But actually I found something else written by a friend of his who said, Chimodanov was now a wealthy man, and therefore he could afford to take a risk. And again, really illustrative that actually motivation here, yes, it was primarily political, but let's not forget the practical in all of this. Um, so Chimonanov starts working uh, originally for newspapers, then for satirical journals, and then he's introduced to a member of the finance committee in Moscow, the finance committee of uh, the Social Democratic Party. Uh, specifically, he was a Bolshevik. And through this Bolshevik, Chimodanov is then introduced to a man named Dmitry Pshansky. Now, Bashar Dmitrievka, which is right next door to the Kremlin, going up adjacent with um, Tverskaya, um, it, housed, it used to house, back in this time, a large photographic studio. And this was Pshansky's photographic studio. And he sold principally images of um, uh, people from the Bashar theatre, so, 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 so ballet dancers, uh, opera singers and all the rest. And um, in about February 1906, 
he makes an agreement with Chimodanov to produce his caricatures in postcard form. And what we then get is you start getting mentions in, in the police archives of them coming across these images. And it's a real cat and mouse chase. And over the next year, they start to pin it together. And eventually, after much toing and throwing, Chimodanov is caught. And while it was ongoing, this was an industrial enterprise. He had 20 or 30 students going around, knocking on doors, selling postcards to principally members of, of the bourgeoisie. Um, that's how he described it. And again, um, Chimonanov is here nominally working for the Social Democrats. But actually, it's interesting that the aim here is to fundraise. Because if the aim was pure agitation, they would probably go for a different class of society. I want to move on a bit and, and have you talk about how more in depth about how the government tried to control the 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 mostly the the distribution of these cards because um did people send them through the mail and and you know what did they write on them if they did send them through the mail and then what did the SARS government uh do to try to you know curtail their their distribution um so this is a really interesting question, and I, and I think it's two parts to it. One is the consumption part, and the other is the censorship part. Um, in terms of uh, the way the postcards were used, very, very few of them were ever sent through the post. Um, this was uh, partly because of the danger, um, and the, probably it's difficult to give numbers, but the majority were illegal. And um, the question of illegality is a very complicated one because sometimes a legal image, if it was produced by a revolutionary party, would produce a revolution uh, would produce an, an illegal object. But that same image produced by a private firm would nominally be legal. Um, but certainly in terms of caricature, the majority were illegal, and therefore you see almost zero having been sent through the post. Um, in terms of other imagery. Some, uh, quite a few views of um, the December um, uprising in Moscow in 1905, I found that were sent particularly abroad, funnily enough, um, but also other images were sent in, in Russia. But in the early 1900s, um, postcards were actually not viewed as solely as a communication device. And you get a split in collectors between those who insist that a postcard doesn't become a postcard until it's sent through the post, and those, and those ones who say, no, this is a decorative object that can exist by itself. And so the name of um, uh, Nikolai Murta's magazine, the, the Home Museum, you know, gives an idea of what these are meant to do. They were a, 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 um, an album of, of visual images that did not necessarily have to um, ha have writing on the back. And so if we fast forward to 1905, these images could exist as miniature posters, as and of themselves. And so you actually see very, very few having been sent through the post. Um, the majority of them were um, kept in pristine condition in albums, in desk drawers, and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, in terms of what the Tsarist government did, um, right from the very start, uh, the Tsarist government viewed postcards with extreme caution. Uh, and actually, when the, when the idea to first introduce them in the early 1870s was proposed, 
um, the postal regulations were sent out to all regional postal departments. And two of them wrote back and said, look, we're seriously concerned that postcards will increase um, the possibility of confrontation between state and society. Uh, and actually, that's what happened. Um, within a couple of years, you start seeing interior minister documents back and forth between the postal uh, department um, saying we've come across illegal images, or sorry, we've come across messages uh, that have illegal uh, content. Some of them have been drawn with illegal images, and many of them are just purely insulting. And these were sent to uh, officials, um, and um, the third department, secret police at that time, was extremely concerned. And actually they considered banning postcards altogether. Eventually what they did was they set up um, a system of monitoring, um, and these uh, monitoring departments, which existed in all the major uh, centres of the empire, were known as black, black cabinets, and they weeded out um, anything suspect. Um, beyond that, in terms of the imagery, preliminary censorship was in force uh, for postcards right the way through, even after 1905, um, to some extent. And anything that smacked of uh, opposition was removed. And actually, really prior to 1905, you don't get any form of mass production of um, dissident images at all. And the censor could be pretty harsh about anything particularly religious, particularly um, unauthorised images of the Tsar, um, but most of all pornography. And pornographic postcards were um, a major issue uh, throughout the revolution and before. And there's a great um, example that I came across uh, in St. Petersburg, um, where the Society of St. Eugenia had had three postcards depicting um, classical statues in the Hermitage rejected. And there was a very apologetic letter from the censor and said, look, we're terribly sorry, but you can't print pictures of nude women. Do you have a sense of how many were in circulation? Did the police have any sense of how many were, were kind of being exchanged and distributed? So um, it, it, it's not clear. So legal uh, socialist or opposition imagery was produced um, according to the census records. Uh, the ones, this particular manufacturer called Vasily Metalnikov, and his images were produced between two and 5,000 copies. But they went through multiple reprints. Um, in terms of range of images, um, I went to the uh, Museum of Contemporary History um, in St. Petersburg, and they have drawers and drawers and drawers of these postcards. And the curator there said that they, I think there was about over 4,000 different images from the 1905 to 1907 period. Um, so, you know, vast numbers. We're talking about in their millions. And it's certainly, it's my contention, um, and I've done a few rough figures, although I'm aware they're absolutely not scientific, but it is my contention that postcards were the most widespread form of visual propaganda produced at this period during, during the reign of Nicholas II. Yeah, I mean, if you consider if there's 4,000 Im different images, and if you just consider if they're reprinted two to 5,000 at a time in multiple, I mean, exponentially, it grows really fast in terms of their distribution. This is, this is unbelievable. So 
do we have a do you have a sense of what the reception of these images were by the people who consumed them? From what I've seen looking, I spent a lot of time looking at the backs of images, trying to find contemporary records of how they were received. And um, I've managed to piece together what I think to be a fairly accurate representation, but it can be elusive, um, not least because so few of them were actually written upon. I think, this, I think the simple answer is it was many and varied and actually really depended on the individual. So for your revolutionary, these were, you know, totemic items of, of, of revolutionary belief. And they could be, you know, um, documents or, or rather um, images that could strengthen and uh, enlarge um, that belief. Um, but I think at the same time, because you also get quite a few humorist images um, that are broadly oppositional, but um, either by using puns or, or, or through um, amusing depictions, um, you know, I think also they could also, you could simply buy a postcard because um, you were amused by it. And I think, as I mentioned earlier on, um, these were also records of experience and time. And so whether it was because of revolutionary belief, whether because it was fashion, or whether you just wanted to cast a, a wry glance at, at the period, or you know, show to your mate, ha ha ha, look what the czar's doing in this, in, in, in this postcard. Um, I think their uses were, were multiple and various. But I think what they did do overall is they concentrated hearts and minds. And while it's impossible to say what the concrete effect of all these postcards was, it goes without saying that to have millions of opposition images in circulation at this period is not going to help increase support for the regime. And I think you know, what we see, without wanting to extrapolate too much from it, I think what we see in 1905 and I think what we see in this period is really um, faith in the regime being lost. And after 1907, um, when the regime has grappled back control, Russia is re really developing. And I think um, in terms of consumer choice, in terms of production, in terms of the images being produced, postcards really show Russia as a modern developing society. But underneath all that, none of those issues have been solved. And I think you know, with all the uh, economic crisis, with all the difficulties of the First World War, a lot of that underlying feeling, which had never gone away, came back. And so I think the overall effect of the, of the visual propaganda, the written propaganda in this period, is to undermine the core faith. And it's not critical. It absolutely, you know, were of later events not to have happened. Um, you know, there's, there's no reason to suggest that revolution would have happened. But I think, you know, this is a brittle regime and that support um, had gone. Now, it is also very clear that um, even in production in 1905, that appetite for revolution disappears in 1906 and 1907. But that doesn't mean to say that beliefs have completely changed. That was Toby Matthew, a writer and historian specializing in Russian graphic art and propaganda. He's the author of Greetings from the Barricades, Revolutionary Postcards in Imperial Russia, published by Four Corners Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. 
The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all of my patrons for your continued support. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.